on the Spencer's the Pez, Goking out at the cons, Renaissance Fest, Watch anime chicks with inflatable breasts. You might be a Trekkie, <laughs> sit back and watch as the Uber geek goes and kicks it up a notch. Turn to the left to F in your dictionary and add this word to your vocabulary. Take a look, cause I'm the real McCoy. Damn it, Jim, I'm not a doctor, I'm just the definition of a fanboy, baby. Listen up, fanboy. It's the Fanboy Planet Podcast, special Comic-Con interview edition. I'm Rick Brett Snyder, and I'm recording tonight. I'm patching together all the little interviews that Derek McCaw and I did while we were at Comic-Con. We've got about eight of them set up for you tonight. And I wanted to let you know, some of these are a little long, and they might not be what you want to hear. So before each one, I'm going to jump in and tell you how long the upcoming interview is so you can skip it if you're not interested because you want to hear segment eight and that is a special interview with doc hammer and jackson public creators perhaps they are the venture brothers so without any further ado let's go right into the first one it's 15 minutes of dc universe online all right, so we're here at Comic Con. First uh, exhibit of the night for us is uh, Sony Online Entertainment to, with Herb Elwood. Uh, what was your title again? I'm the UI designer for DC Universe Online. So we're getting a getting a, hand, a first look at the DC Universe Online. So tell us a little bit about your excitement for this game. Uh, okay, so. I've been in the game industry for about 15 years, and uh, this is the first MMO action game that I've ever played or seen. Uh, we're, we're building this game to work on the console and the PC. It's not just one or the other. Uh, we're really excited about possibly having interoperability between the two as well. We've got a lot of stuff to work out on that, so it's not a guaranteed thing, but we're really excited. And in-house, we are doing that. In-house right now, the PCs are fighting. In fact... Right now, when we're playing right now, the PCs are fighting the PS3s. So when you see these players fighting, we're all going in. And that's, that's something new that you don't get to see. I mean, no one's done that in the MMO yet. Um, we have a lot of physics in our games. The MMOs up to this point have been, you know, I fire, you fire, I fire, you fire. This is an action game. This game's based around us fighting, um, just hand-to-hand combat, throwing stuff at each other, picking up cars, slinging them down the street, and watching them destroy each other. So... When you talk about all this fast-paced stuff, it gets you excited. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, you made up your own character for the game, and you, you guys are all playing a demo version? Yes, sir. Uh, I'm a big Black uh, Dark Knight fan, and uh, so I got the Batman-type character. And uh, Yeah, it's everybody's got their own little characters that they've made in-house. Uh, but you don't actually get to play a... Um, iconic in the game, so you don't get to play as Batman or um, Superman, as one try to spit out there. And, uh, what you do is you make your character. Uh, we have a character creator in the game, so you'll go in, you set your character, pick out all his costume pieces, set them to all the colors you want to make it, and then basically our, our vision is, is everyone is making their own superhero to play inside the DC Universe. Um, one of the cool things is, is this is a licensed title. I mean, DC Universe, you know, it's, it's their universe. So you're getting to make a character that when he's in there, 
all the pieces that we put together have been looked over by Jim Lee and the DC people as saying, "Hey, these are all pieces that are we want in our in our books and our game, you know, to wor- live in our DC world." So you're really making a DC character. You're not just making, "Oh, I just get to pick headgear and blah blah blah." I mean, if that character was really cool, you know, and, and somehow one day you were able to put it up, they could use that in DC as a licensed visual character because it's all the the. The character design. Would they owe the player any money? Or oh no, 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 absolutely not. No, no they could just take. It, okay, yeah. that's it. Because really, you can't take it out of the game, right? I mean, it's it's all inside the game, and it's, and it's all their license stuff. But so, what I'm, the point I'm trying to say is, when you put on a pair of goggles or something, it's not a bunch of guys back at the office going, "Hey, those look like cool goggles." DC has looked that through and said that belongs in the DC universe. So you're building a DC character in the character. Yes, yeah, sir. So what's the name of your character? The name of my character. I really don't have any character name for him. We just made him up. And my first name is Herb. My last name is Elwood. So I go by Hellwood. So Hellwood. I like Hellwood. it. Okay. So my <laughs> so my dark knight is Hellwood. So what what are we seeing on the screen here? Can you walk us through okay, that? Yes, Since sir. this is an incredibly visual medium. Yes, sir. Um, so what we got here is this this character here. He's a bad guy. His name's Ampage. And then this is a single player campaign in our game. This is the Joker. Harry Quinn. Now I'm going to go over, and I can go over and talk to the Joker. And it's like any other MMO. You go on little quests, and you do you do achievements and stuff. And that's what this this campaign here is set up for. We're going to go fight. So you're teamed up with the Joker right now. Yes, sir. So because you don't get to play as a as a character, as an iconic character, our biggest push is to allow you to play with them. So through the whole world, even if we weren't in the quest out here, we were outside and we were running around in the streets, the Joker and all them, they have quests that they're on all the time, and so you keep running across them. You keep running, even just in free play. They're, he's trying to do something. you got, oh, wow, I'm going to stop the Joker from doing that. So we really want you to, to play against the Joker and, and all the iconics that are in the DC Universe. It's a single, it's a single player thing. But you can also like in earlier, and I'm sure others to come, uh, superhero-based MMORPGs. You can do to create your own super teams within the DC universe. Yes, sir. So what you would do is you'd set up a, basically, you know, on WoW they call them guilds. But you would set up your own. We don't have a title for it yet. Uh, what you would call it? But basically, what you do is you get your friends and you set up a little group, and then your group could run around and be their own. You know, Lantern Core type, but you can't use Lantern Core name, you know. So, but you, yeah, yeah, you would have to build your own. Exactly. So, there you go. Um, it is, it is a massive multiplayer. Um, you know, we, it is thousands and thousands of people at one time in there. So it's, it, it plays like a single player action game, but it is a true MMO. So now you're getting, you've done the battle. You're getting instruction to go speak to the Joker. Yes, sir. So part of the quest, yeah. Now I gotta go speak to the Joker. Here. So it seems very clear as to what you're supposed to do next in any any given point. Yes, sir. You know, it's it's there's there's a lot of MMOs out there right now. So there's a lot of good standard MMO things about quest trackers and stuff like that. You follow through, and we have all of that in there. Um, a lot of people will come up and look at the HUD and look at the game and say, you know, it, it doesn't look like an MMO because where's my 4,000 icons and where's all this other stuff? And it's, we really have it all in the game. We didn't take anything away. 
uh, we had to hide it differently. We had to put stuff away because it's up front an action play game. Even though it's an MMO, you play it like an action game. We couldn't have this big, big old screen full of stuff. So um, they don't have it in this demo. It's hard to, to show right now. But we have an inventory screen that pops up just like any other MMO. You have inventory, you have stat screen, you have a power screen, you load your powers up. You have this bar, you get to pick what powers go into that bar. Uh, you don't get four powers, you get a whole abundance. You only take four at a time with you. Um, we also have, I just switched them, so now I'm in a defensive mode, and I got four more powers. Now I'm in a support mode, and I got four more powers. So, I mean, it, even though it looks very simple on the front end, it's really well hidden, but quick access. I mean, back in offensive mode. So you switch in, in and out of these modes, and your your four icons change depending upon the mode. Yes, sir. Try this task done here. Now right now, we are still pre-alpha. And so we have, we, our biggest, my biggest thing now, we have some camera issues. You see it swinging around, but we're still pre-alpha. we got quite a ways to go um, before we're actually going to be shipping this game. But as an out, as a pre-alpha game, you can see if you see a lot of pre-alpha games. This is quite quite a ways into it. I hope you're getting good sound. Yeah. <laughs> I, I am. I'd love to get some dialogue. There. Yeah. Some sound effects. I know. I um. I know it's not real good for a mic interview for me not to be talking much. That's okay. Let me. I'm trying to get through this one little spot here. What you'll be able to do is uh, just cut that five-minute section out right there. Yeah. <laughs> we'll move on. Uh, so now I'm, I'm still running down this hall. I'm going to get these guys. We're going to get out to the main lobby out here after I beat these guys up. Then we get to see a big five. But right now is defeating uh, mutant zombies because apparently no game can exist without zombies. Um, oh, killing me. Uh, they're fast zombies, though. They're fast zombies. Oh, thanks, Rick. Thanks for that reassuring uh, reminder. At least they aren't, they aren't weeping sore with zombies. Yeah, what's cool, here's another thing now, sorry. So what is good about when the fit when the objects are um, engine things that we designed into the game is that if you notice my encounters here, I've knocked them out. My job is just, I'm supposed to be trying to heal them. So once I get them, and I healed that guy. Now he's, he doesn't look healed because I'm a bad guy, but all I did was we healed him and now he's on my team. Ah. So they actually join your team. So we have to. So you beat them up, they fall to the floor, and then you have to heal them and then they become part of your army. It's just like real world. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. I feel right at home. So we in, we're injecting them with this uh, infected tech stuff that we have and stick it in them and now all of a sudden they're on your team. So let me see here. I'm going to get all these guys fixed. Now i got my mutant army that's on my team. You're not going to dance to Thriller now, are you? Yes, I am. <laughs> you, you've seen this demo before? No, I haven't. <laughs> so... The single player campaign is we have the Oracle comes up for the heroes and they'll come in and what they do is they guide you through the single player campaign. You know. Right, so, so the next thing we're gonna hear is we I mean, might have heard the Joker say, 
now you got to go find Solomon Grundy and Bizarro, two zombie-like characters in the okay. DC universe. Uh, they a mission called the Mutagenic Horror. So, we're inside of Star Labs, which is pretty cool being inside of Star Labs because, you know, this is one of the only game that you get to actually jump in and go to all of the DC Universe stuff. I mean, we're going to get to go to Star Labs. We get to go to Metropolis. We're going to go into all the DC's, you know, cities and stories, Gotham City. All of the campaign is taking place throughout the universe. We're not staying in, like, it's not going to be in Gotham City. It's everywhere. I got one question yes, for sir. you. Ambush bug? Ambush bug. Okay, so this is where you're going to get me hard. Ambush bug is going to be in the game. Yeah, I'm 99% positive that. We just had this thing asked me yesterday. I, myself, am on the light inside of the DC comic world. I don't know who Ambush Bug is. Right. not into the deep side of the DC comic. That's alright, but you gave so, us enough. He's going to so, eventually be in the game. And, and if I remember correctly, I was told yesterday that Ambush Bug, because they even brought that one up, y'all nailed the one. They were like, they're going to ask about Ambush Bug. And if I understand... Oh, yes, they are. They heard we were coming. <laughs> yeah, yes. And, it, and, I'm, and I'm 99% positive they said Ambush Bug will be in the game. Excellent. This is the best news that could come out of Comic-Con so far. Well, yeah. I also had to go into the Mattel booth and ask, request an ambush bug figure. You walk by too fast. Uh, I did that. <laughs> Our work here is done. It's done. Well, my last thing here um, is we got the big the big boss, right? And what's beautiful about it is we are a superhero game. I mean, I, you haven't seen any superhero stuff, so... You know. That's a good supervillain yeah. game already. Yeah, that I'm looks like that. Superman. Oh, no, it's not. Yeah, that's Bizarro. There's Solomon Grundy. And they're, and they're taking out the dude, and he's needing my help. But since I'm a superhero, I've got superpowers. I get to run on walls as, as a speedster. Ooh. It's a nice visual effect of the feet uh, sparking up the ground as you run along. The, the object step I was telling you about, you get to pick stuff up. So, I mean, you don't get to see this in your average MMO. Your average MMO doesn't have... They have superpowers, yeah. I mean, you know, City of Heroes is a great game, and they got their superpowers, but being able to pick up objects and use it in the world in your fight right. is pretty cool. So then we're going to get out here and go back. We have flying, we have super speed, we have an acrobat. An acrobat, you can do cool jumps and flip fights, and, and you know, actually I think that's another speedster. There's a flying character. It's going to fly. So, you know, with those three, we're able to switch on all the powers and everything on her. We've got most of the characters covered, you know. Batman's being an acrobatic, you know, uh, super speed. And there's still room for expansion. I mean, I know you say you're in pre-alpha right now, but the intention is that as this plays out for a while, once it's released, there will be expansions beyond that, right? Yes, sir. Absolutely. You know, like any MMO, when you when you put this much work into something, you really are trying to build a franchise that's going to last 10 years, not a franchise that's going to last two years. Um, you know, we've been in development on this game for many years now, and you just put a lot of blood and sweat into it. It's not a one-off. Yeah, there will be many expansive packs down the road. Right, so killer question... You think you know when you're going to be able to go into beta on this? No, I don't. Um, that is not, that's not just the line. We really don't. Right now, we're at the point where you know, DC Universe, Sony Online are really focused on making a AAA title. Uh, there is some really, really good 
um, superhero games out there, MMOs. There's some great, you know, wow, there's some great MMOs out there. In order for us to be in that market and competing with them, we have to have a good one too. And so at this point, we're holding off on giving any kind of numbers or in-house as well, you know, making that decision until we feel like, hey, you know what, this is starting to be compatible. You know, we're, we're actually got a game that we're, we feel like we can compete with these guys. And uh, we're getting really, really close, man. I mean, it's, it it's like pretty it. cool. It looks so. like it. So, Herb, thank you very oh, much yes, for your sir. time. It's yes, been sir. A great, great time. Thanks very thank much. You. Yes, sir. It's Fanboy Planet Podcast signing off. Say something. No, you got it. Okay. Because I'm not cutting this. I know. Okay. Bye. Okay, next up, we'll spend about four minutes with the lovely Jenny of THQ talking about Marvel Superheroes Squad. Now, Jenny may sound like one of those booth babes, and she certainly could have been that, but she was a rockin' gamer, too, so let's listen up. Okay, here we are Fanboy Planet at Comic-Con Day 1 Thursday, and we're here with Jenny from THQ. Hi. And we're talking about Marvel Superhero Squad, a new release coming out. Do you have a date? It'll be coming out October 20th on the Wii, DS, PSP, and PS2. Okay, so, no Xbox Love. No, we're really looking to target kids with this game, and okay. actually there's an animated TV series that Marvel is doing. Uh, Superhero Squad animated TV series is coming out on Cartoon Network in September. Now, I've been watching the game, and the figures are all like the mini Marvels. Yes, style. they are. They're the exaggerated uh, figurines that are... Super deformed? Is that the right term? Uh, I wouldn't say they're deformed. They're the, they're the figurines... Oh, it's uh, a Japanese term for oh, the smaller... You know, uh, all the action figures that are created by Hasbro. Right. So Hasbro already has those toys out in the marketplace, and they're doing another uh, push this fall with uh, product line extension with plush action figures. They're not going to do... Uh, single pack action figures and and a lot of different variations of the toys. So now this is a very colorful game, and as we said, it's it's figures. The figures don't look quite like people are going to expect from reading comic books if they're not already familiar with the. Oh no, not at all. And I think this is a great way to get kids started on the Marvel properties, and then moving on into you know the older Marvel properties and the comic books. And there's know? no blood, no severed limbs. No, there is not. No there is not. Moves. It's rated E10. Uh, so we're looking at you know we we do have cartoon violence because of the fighting aspect, but no blood. Uh, you know, you're destroying robots and objects. You're not really, you know, trying to kill each other. So gameplay has a couple of different modes? Yes, there's actually two modes. There's adventure mode and battle mode. So adventure mode is really tied to the storyline of the animated TV series. In fact, the writer on our video game, um, he's the same writer that did the animated TV series. Do you know his name? His name is Mark Hoffmeyer. Okay. And he'll actually be... Uh, I'll actually be at our booth on Friday, uh, doing interviews. And so the six, uh, the six, there's six campaigns in our adventure mode, and they're based on the six main superhero squad uh, heroes. So it's Wolverine, Hulk, Iron Man, Thor, Falcon, Silver Surfer. And then in battle mode, you can basically mix and match. You can play up to two players in adventure mode. You can play up to four players in battle mode, and it's co-op. So if you're, you can always play with an AI buddy. So you could choose from over 20 playable characters. So in I can have four mode. people duking it out in battle mode. Yeah, it's great. You could do three on one, two on two, however you like it. Wow. If, you're, if you're playing by yourself and you want to fight all the bad guys, you know the three three bad guys could be gaining up on you depending on how you set up the game. So is there any online component to this? There is no online component. Okay. Uh, just because we are looking to target kids, it's, it just gets a little bit um, trickier Understood. with the online uh, restrictions. Understood. So what's, I mean, competitively, what sells this game? You know, I think what sells this game is this is very different from the other Marvel properties that's out there. It's, 
you know, when we've showed this game before at various press events and at E3, it's, you know, adults like to play this game. It's not something an adult would play as a, you know, daily basis, but it's really easy to pick up and play that they would be playing with their kids or a younger brother or somebody else. So it's definitely a kid's game, but it's it's still got enough depth for adults to want to play with their so kids. So for the whole family. Exactly, exactly. Especially when you're playing four players, anybody can jump in. And the controllers are, you know... The, the control moves are really um, easy to, to pick up and play, too. So, so it is like a stackable move system? Yeah, yeah, you can do combo moves, matching. you know, A and B to attack, not just button matching. Okay. So uh, you have a street date for this thing? Yes, October 20th. October 20th, yep. just in time for Christmas. Yes, and then what's great or is... Halloween. Well, I, I mean, I, I might even... Maybe I'm, I'm stealing it, but the, the cool thing about this is uh, we have a... Spider-Man is an unlockable character, so oh. once you unlock that, you'll get to play as Spidey. And he, he makes a cameo in the animated series, so that's why he's not a huge focus within the game, but he's playable and unlockable, and that's what I think the kids will want to work towards. Oh, that's great. Thanks very much for talking to us today. Thank Have a great you. time. Thank you. Next up is a real treat, because we were able to head off to the lobby of a nearby hotel to meet with legendary... Watchman artist Dave Gibbons. Now, this is about an eight-minute interview, but you're not going to want to skip this one. Go. Okay. Go. Uh, we're here with Dave Gibbons, Fanboy Planet podcast, and uh, of course, Dave Gibbons, uh, artist extraordinaire, uh, icon in the industry, really. Uh, is artist that French? Extraordinaire? I think maybe. Okay, I'll, I'll accept I, it. But I'm an English teacher. So, uh, artist on Watchmen, of course, Green Lantern Corps, uh, many other works that I'm, of course, completely... Doctor Who, Dan Dare, Superman, Batman, Martha Washington. Everything. Everything. You've done it all. Almost. <laughs> Working on the rest of it. All right. So um, today uh, you've been involved in a panel on, or, or this weekend you're here on a panel about wa- motion comics. Yeah. So you, uh, they say, how did it enlarge your work for uh, the first major motion comic, which was, which was the Watchmen adaptation. Mm-hmm. And now are you doing original work for motion comics? Is I'm, I'm not at the moment, although I suspect that anything I do in the future will be done with one eye on the possibility of, of it being translated into motion comics. I think it's um, motion comics at the moment is kind of interesting territory. It's new territory, and I think mm-hmm. we're uh, kind of Watchmen is pioneering it, and I think we still need to stake the territory out and work out the, the kind of grammar of this new medium. And I think there are a number of ways to approach it of which the way that Watchmen's been done is, is is one. But I have the feeling that as more and more creative people, comic book artists, get involved in it, it's going to evolve and change. And I think, uh, you know, it's, it's going to be probably more of a spectrum of um, digital content rather than one particular form. So um, after my year, more or less, of promoting Watchmen, I'm, I'm looking forward to getting back to serious work and I probably will have more a more definitive answer when I've... Uh, if you come back and ask me next year. Well, I hope I will. But uh, do you think with that one eye on that, are you, do you think it's going to affect your style in any particular way? I would think it wouldn't affect my style per se because, uh, you know, I draw the way I draw. I write, write the way I write. Um, I think that, I mean, I do a lot of my stuff digitally now anyway. I think if you're going to adapt something for motion, it makes things very much easier if you've got the foreground characters and the background, for instance, on different layers. And it's quite easy to draw a comic book doing that. So I think if I was working on something that I felt would work as a motion comic, and not necessarily everything would, but anything that would work as a motion comic, I think I'd at least 
you know, take steps to make sure that it was uh, kind of future-proofed. Mm-hmm. I mean, you're obviously happy with what with Watchmen, but if you could say, like, go back in time and tell yourself, <laughs> this is going to be moving one day. Well, yeah, I mean, it was okay for me because, I mean, I drew, drew the comic book and then I sat on the sidelines while um, um, uh, Jake Hughes and the, the animators had the unenviable job of taking everything to bits, you know, cutting all the figures out of the background, drawing all the backgrounds in, matching the line work, matching the colours. It would have saved them literally months of work. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, is there any particular work you, that you have done that you think would be a great next step in that? That you think that would be ready? Well, Martha Washington might be one. It'd be interesting to see what you could do with Martha Washington. I mean, that's a different beast than Watchmen. Watchmen's a very complex wordy, um, dense narrative. Martha Washington is much more swashbuckling and action-packed. I think it would be interesting to see that in a, in, in a motion comic. And, uh, um, yeah, I mean, and I think even some of the... I mean, when you start to think about it, I mean, stuff that I did very much in the past, even stuff like Doctor Who, again, you know, there's, a, there's an audience out there that would probably like to see the moving adventures of the Doctor. You know, I, I think that we... You can catch people with with motion comics who you might not otherwise catch in the net of of comic books. Um, I mean, when I first got into this motion comic thing, what really made me think it was a good idea was the reaction of my teenage stepdaughters to it. Um, I'd shown the the sort of prototype of the thing to other people in the business and animators and games people, and they were quite technically critical of it, and this was good, that wasn't so good, this might be an improvement, this kind of thing. I showed it to my stepdaughters. They went, oh, this is great. What happens next? And, of course, those are the magic words for any storyteller. What happens next? That's what you want people to be saying all the time. And I knew at that point that although probably there were people like me, old, dyed-in-the-wool comic book guys, to whom it would not be a necessity, it it, it was a way of of bringing in an audience. And both my stepdaughters have since read the graphic novel. But they hadn't before. They hadn't before. So uh, it's just another way of telling the story. So uh, when you're going to, say, once you're done with this promotion, get to go back to it, what what kind of things are you going to be working on? Can you say? Well, uh, I, I'm going to have to be rather coy and vague about it. Um, it's only because we we, re- we really don't know precisely, but I'm going to be working with Mark Miller um, on a creator-owned project. Uh, exactly what that's going to be, who's going to publish it, etc., is yet to be determined. Um, but I'm very much looking forward to that. And Mark, as you know, is a, a, a very forward-looking writer who's very interested in different media. So I'm really interested to see what he and I can can come up with. The story with that is that Mark actually wrote me a fan letter when he was 17 years old, and I was you know, considerably older, and I'd forgotten all about it, but apparently I wrote him back a four-page letter and sent him a sketch, and he was always deeply touched by that. So uh, it's really interesting that after all these years, you know, we're going to be doing something t- together, and we're both really, really looking forward to it. Whether that might become a motion comic at some point, I don't know. It's it's possible, um, or whether we deliver it in some other kind of digital form. But I think there are all these incredible possibilities and this whole spectrum of ways of telling stories now that I think you have to be aware of and have to, you know, take advantage of. Yes, and and you also were doing this interview on the week that Watchmen came out, uh, the director's cut on DVD. So mm-hmm. now that you've had that major Hollywood experience, would you do that again? 
Well, I don't know. I mean, I, I've had a very happy Hollywood experience. I've been very well treated. I think the end product is something that everybody connected with it can be very proud of, that I'm certainly very happy with everything from the movie, the motion comics, even the merchandising, even the posters. <laughs> you, you know, I, I think everybody who's been involved with it has been absolutely committed and been real fans and has done nothing other than their best work on it. I can imagine it being going horribly wrong and being done... You know, all these things are very easy to do badly. Um, but no, I mean, if I could repeat the experience that I've had with that, I'd be very happy to get involved again. Well, what you said you were happy with the merchandising. What would be, the, the say, the, the weirdest Watchmen merchandise that you've seen? Well, I th- the thing that made me smile was, I know that it's a promotional item, the filmmakers did uh, Watchmen condoms, which are like blue condoms oh. <laughs> and the slogan on them is society's only protection which uh, I think is, a, is an, a, an absolute hoot I mean who, who couldn't smile you know? <laughs> uh, we didn't see those uh, <laughs> well they were obviously snapped up and used and oh, are now floating down the, down the harbour that's somewhere. something you definitely want to get mint <laughs> yes, you, w- yes you, wouldn't, you, you wouldn't want a near mint one of those or a, or a very fair one well, I think there's no topping that. So, no. <laughs> Mr. Gibbons, it's been an honor to speak to you. Well, thanks very much. I and appreciate the interest. Time. Thank you very much. Thank, thank you. you. Now we jump back across the street to Comic-Con to a conference room where we sit in on a roundtable interview with writer-director Michael Doherty of the upcoming movie Trick or Treat. This is a four-minute interview, so have fun. We're here with Michael Doherty, uh, who is the writer-director of Trick or Treat, yep, and one of the co-writers on Superman Returns and X Two, correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I also saw you associated with the DC booth, so I'm believing there's some comic work as We're well. We're doing um, well. There's a comic book adaptation of Trick or Treat. Oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> Did you write that yourself? I wrote that with Mark Andreco. Where I mean, Mark Andreco wrote comic books based on my screenplay. So, okay. Yeah. Right. We've got that straight. Uh, um, okay. Uh, so. Now, you've, you've worked, obviously, as a, as a screenwriter in kind of the science fiction genre, so why go, or the superhero genre, really, why go to horror for your directorial debut? Um, horror has always been my favorite genre of film, to be totally honest. Uh, I like to hop around in genres, definitely. Um, but I grew up watching black and white monster movies, Godzilla films, Twilight Zone episodes. So uh, horror is where the heart is for me. Okay. And then the anthology format, too. Mm-hmm. So it's, on one hand, the sort of the easier I mean, horror sells well, but anthologies... Yeah, I mean, I think anthology and horror go really well together. Uh, you know, and sadly, we don't see it so much anymore. But there was definitely a golden era when I was growing up of amazing stories, um, a revamp of The Twilight Zone, a revamp of Alfred Hitchcock Presents, Tales from the Crypt, uh, Tales from the Dark Side... Mm-hmm. Creep show. Um, the 80s were an amazing era of anthology genre filmmaking. Uh, and for whatever reason, it just kind of went away. But uh, I wanted to combine my love of horror films and uh, anthologies and bring it back. So you're sitting down to kind of create this anthology. Are there any story ideas that just said, this just isn't going to work and you're saving for Trick or Treat 2 when you're ready for that? You know what? I wouldn't say I'm ready. There's definitely some <laughs> ideas in the back of my head that uh, I'm kicking around if we should be so lucky to do another one. But yeah. Okay. So how was it making your directorial debut? You'd obviously first time behind the camera. Yeah, so. it was a roller coaster ride. You know, it still is. Um, 
But, I mean, the good news was I had kind of gone through it on... Uh, when I was working with Brian on X-Men 2 and on Superman Returns. Uh, the beauty of working on those films was that he wanted myself and my writing partner, Dan Harris, around 24-7. So uh, typically a screenwriter you know, does a couple drafts, emails into the studio, and if they're lucky, they can go to the premiere in a year and a half. Uh, rarely are they ever on set. Rarely are they ever involved with any other decisions. Um, Brian treated Dan and myself as cohorts. You know, we were kind of part of a very close-knit think tank. And so we were there for visual effects meetings, for budget meetings, you know, for costumes. Uh, so it was really a great uh, boot camp on how, how you make films. And I got to apply a lot of what I learned on X2 as Superman onto Trick or Treat. Even though the scale went from gigantic to tiny, um, everything still applied. Mm-hmm. You're going to like that, having that tiny scale? Does it feel better to make that, that leap that way? In a way, yeah. I mean, I think it's always best, you know, especially since I was directing this one. Um, you know, when you're gambling less money, you don't feel the same amount of overwhelming pressure. Um, but also, it was kind of nice to do... It was a little more guerrilla and independent than um, the big budget superhero films. I, I understand. So, uh, and Gary broke my train of thought. Um, so then, let's say you know we're on the eve of a release for this. Mm-hmm. So, um, what do you have something lined up next? What are we looking forward to next? Um, I'm working on another project which involves monsters, uh, a little bit bigger than the ones in this movie. Um, I always like to say that everything that I tackle, every project, I'm really just checking off a checklist I created when I was about eight or nine years old. So between X-Men, Superman, Halloween, uh, those are all things I was obsessed with as a kid. The one other thing I was obsessed with growing up with were Godzilla films. So um, take what you will from that. <laughs> I think we got it. All right. Well, thank you, Michael, for your time. Thank, thank you. Down with us. Take care. Have fun. Okay. This next one is a very favorite one of mine. The Prisoner, BBC, Patrick McGowan show that's being reimagined for American audiences on AMC. Well, let's get it to it. We're talking to Bill Gallagher, who is the writer for the show. This is about a 12-minute interview. Uh, Okay, uh, we're here with Bill Gallagher, who's the writer of the reimagining, should we call it, (laughs) of of The Prisoner. Uh, so the first question I have, Bill, is, is I, I missed the very beginning of the panel. Um, what inspired you to take on The Prisoner? Well, what inspired me to take it on was a telephone call I received one evening when I was walking home from somebody I didn't know, from Granada Television, asking me would I consider writing a new version of The Prisoner. And um, it, what happened was I was walking home and I just ducked down this little alleyway and so I found myself in this dark alleyway having this strange conversation with this man I didn't know and um, what came back to me was my own childhood experiences as a prisoner and um, I remember you know I didn't understand the show at the time I couldn't make sense of it but it absolutely haunted me and um, disturbed me and um, I knew immediately that I was asked when I was asked that I wanted to do it I don't know how I'd do it, I don't know what I would do, but I knew that it was a unique opportunity to do something you know, different to, to, um, to all the other stuff you might see on television. So uh, you did that, we said it's kind of a reimagining. So again, what kind of influences went into changing it up for you? I realized, you know, it would be absolutely pointless to repeat what Patrick would have done. Um, you know, why do it? Um, 
And so what approach would I take? And it seemed to me that the, the most interesting thing to do was to respond to the original and to respond to what I saw in the original. And what the original had for me, you know, the, here was this drama which was about the assertion of the individual, you know, the, um, the individual um, fighting against what McGowan called the prison of society. And, um, and I kind of looked around me in, at the kind of intervening time between when the original prison was made and what we were doing now. And what seemed to me different was that um, now what we have is a kind of the cult of the individual, you know, the triumph of the ego, that um, we, you know, we have asserted our individuality to the point where maybe it's dangerous, maybe it's unhealthy. And I, that, is that my beginning thoughts were around there? So what if, what if the danger is the opposite to what we're doing? So what if the danger is not so much you know, the idea of repression and conspiracy and authority? What if the danger is within us? And that actually our own, um, you know, we all want more, we all want some kind of fix, we all want now, you know, and um, what if these kind of, let's call them selfish drives in us, are dangerous for us as a species? You know, what if we are heading towards ruin? Um, so the danger is not so much out there, you know, with governments and corporations, but the danger is inside of us. Um, and so that became my beginning premise and approach to it. So that, how do you dramatise that? And why, is that, why does that bring us to the village? And what happens when we're in the village? Those were then the challenges I set myself. But that was my basic approach. Okay. Now, along those lines, then, uh, the question that I guess the series has to answer for me when I watch it is, you know, which side is number six on in that argument? Yeah. Because you, you've broken with the tradition of the original series as well by keeping one number two, if I can say it that way. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so, it, which is not the risk, but the, the right of kind of humanizing him. So yeah. that was a very intentional yeah. thing on your part. And so which side are you on? Well, I chose to have one number two because I thought it was a great idea what the original did, but it's been done. You know, they did that. That's what they did, and it was great. So I... So I asked myself, what happens if we keep number two across the whole series? And what happens is you have to start to dig. You can't, he can't just be a dictator. He can't just be an authority figure. We have to dig into the man. And then what became interesting to me is, okay, what are the moral challenges to him? What are, you know, what are the costs to him? You know, here's a man with a mission, and let's say it's a benign mission, and let's say that you know, his creation of the village is something he thinks is for the greater good. You know... So what if he's, you know, what if he has to make personal sacrifices in order to achieve that? So what if he's a man with a family? What if he's a man with a wife and a child? You know, what becomes his drama? Um, so, which side am I on? I tell you what, I find really interesting is I heard when I first started writing years ago, I heard somebody give me this little bit of advice: give the devil the best speeches, which I take to mean, you know, not just what they say, but what they think and what they believe. You know, what if the devil has the best ideas? What if the devil is actually convincing? And and in, in our case, you know, the monster the devil is number two. You know, he's this monster figure who is has created and rules the village. What if his arguments are really convincing? You know, what if there's nothing wrong with what he says? And um, and so that that became an interesting question to ask. So that's not the side that I'm on. Um, but neither do I... I think it's really simple and easy to take Six's side, you know, the hero, the individual, 
you know, taking against this conspiracy, this corporation. You know, so what if Six might doubt himself? What if, what if Six might be wrong? What if Six's beliefs are, are called into question? You know, and for me, that then becomes rich. It becomes something that has got layers to it. And of course, you know, we we um, we all want good to triumph. We all want justice to be done. But I think the journey is something that is more interesting and more complex. If if we don't set out knowing the rightness of six and the wrongness of two. Mm -hmm. And in the panel, you said something that I think you were nuancing between the idea of surveillance, which was a big deal, obviously, in the original, and you and then you recast it as observation. And I didn't quite follow where you were going with that. So if you could. Well, what I would say is that, you know, in the original, surveillance was a sinister, controlling force. And in our series, it is also that, still that, because, because you know, for very obvious and simple reasons, you know, we are entitled to privacy. And, um, how, you know, how can you live when you know you're always being watched? And, of course, that's, that's right. But I, again, I just ask myself, how can, you know, that's been done. The original did that. What else can we do? What else can we ask? How can we make it interesting now? And how can we ask questions that haven't perhaps yet been asked? And so one of the things I asked was, um, okay, so what if, again, what if this watching of people has a good purpose and a useful purpose? So what if in the watching of us as individuals, but also as a mass, what if something is seen, you know, some change in human nature is, um, is observed, which um, needs to be dealt with, needs to be addressed? And so, um, it's, you know, I'm just interested in complexity. I'm interested in, you know, surveillance is bad, you know. I don't want to be under surveillance, and I'm sure neither do you. But what if we ask some more questions? What if we ask, you know, what, um, what if it's not just bad, you know? Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I, um, I'm talking to you as a dramatist, not as a man, you know. As a man, I want to go home and I want to have my privacy, you know. As a dramatist... I'm interested in the questions that really throw up challenges, and that's why when I say, "What if it's what if it's not just surveillance? What if it's observation?" Just because it's interesting. Mm -hmm. Did Did you have the chance or desire to talk to McGowan before he passed away? Um, one of our um, team did speak to him, and um, I would have spoken to him, but um, I had um, written a small part at the very front of the series. And I had this idea that um, McGowan himself said, you know, that the, the plate at the end of the, his series should not have said the end, it should have said the beginning. And by that he meant, he meant that kind of thematically, in that we're, we're still prisoners. But I think he also meant it dramatically, in that the story goes on, you know, and Six will find himself back in the village. So I had this idea that right at the front of my series, that this old man, who might be number six, is trying to escape as we arrive in the village. And, um, and it's a very short part with just a few lines, because I knew McGoon was old and unwell, and we thought perhaps he could do it. And so we approached him and sent him the script, and he was interested in doing it and willing to do it. It's just too unwell. But he did give the show his blessing. And, you know, there have been many, been a lot of talk over a lot of years about remaking the series. We've done it. And he knew we were going to do it, and he was, he was glad about it. And... Um, and he did rather cheaply say he'd like to play number two, um, <laughs> but he's um, he was just too old and unwell. Now, because uh, it's I'd say largely financed, uh, I guess, by American television, and 
when something like this, this challenging comes along, we have to ask the question, do you have a season two in your mind or a series two in your mind of this? You know, there were times in the writing and the making of series one where I thought, let me out of here, you know. Please, I've got to escape, you know. I, um, this is a nightmare, let me out of here. Um, and then just today, you know, um, somebody from AMC said, oh, yeah, what about the sequel, what about the sequel? You know, I think it's a great, great concept. I think, you know, I think it looks wonderful. I think it's a fantastic show. And I, there's always more story to tell. So I would love to do another one. Um, we'll have to see how it does. We'll have to see how people respond. And, um, you know, I may be going back to the village. Well, thank you, Bill. Thank you very much. One question. McGoohan wrote a lot of vagaries into the storyline, things purposely not explained completely, and there's been a lot of discussion in the series afterwards as to what things meant. Is that something you're trying to capture in this? or Because a lot of American television, not with Lost or anything, will start out that way, but eventually build the answers later into the show. I, um, I did want to conclude the series in a way that gave you know, dramatic closure. Um, and I would hope that, um, you know, I just said a moment ago to somebody that um, I hope that where we get to at the end is more scary than where we are at the beginning, you know. So, um, so there are a lot of revelations, a lot of explanations, and a lot of you know, dramatic resolutions. But there, is all, there are also, you know, lots of things which are unfathomable. Which, cause, you know, why do the prisoner if it's neat, you know? Um, and so there are a lot of things which are just going to make us wonder, you know, what's that about? How's that possible? Sure. What does that mean? Mm -hmm. You know, and, and I think some of the fun is, you know, I'm a big Bob Dylan fan. And Bob Dylan fans argue over the lyrics, what they mean, you know, how they add up, where did they come from? And, uh, and Dylan stays out of that debate. And um, so I'm a fan, and I look at it, and, I, and I, I make my own sense of it, and make my own mythology from it. And I love doing that. I love the process of trying to make sense of it. And so I hope the same might be true for fans of The Prisoner. You know, they will try and make their own sense of it because there are there are things in there which aren't neatly tied up in a bow. Okay. Well, thank you for your time, Bill. Thank Thanks you. for the conversation. Good. Thanks. Now we're going to take about 11 minutes. Well, hey, how's that uh, time thing working out for you? Is that working out good? Yeah. Oh, good. All right. Thanks. We're going to take about 11 minutes to talk to Sefton Hill about Batman Arkham Asylum. And by the way, I let Derek win. I'm fine, thank you. Let me make sure we get the last name down. Here. Sefton Hill. Hill. So it's yeah. Sefton Hill. Yes. And From Rock City. Rock City Studios. Rock City Studios. Yeah. Okay. So what else have, we, have you worked on that we know? Uh, we've only done one other game that's been... Uh, we've only been around for four years, so we've done one other game before this, which was Urban Chaos, which was on PlayStation 2 and Xbox, and then after that we moved on to Batman. So, well, we had a year, we worked on new projects, and then we worked on Batman. That was so, on the original Xbox, right? That was the original Xbox, kind of that. right at the end when uh, the new consoles had just come out, so yeah. sort of on that changeover, but that was that was our first game we did in about a year, and then we're... I'm recording right now. Okay. We're Fanboy Planet. We're yeah. on We're on the floor of Comic-Con with Sefton Hill. We're going to talk about Arkham Asylum. Which is the hottest game of 2009, <laughs> 2010, let's tell you. Maybe the decade. It certainly, I mean, aside from, I'm going to give it to Lego Batman. Uh, but Because that was a good Batman game. But you are the best 
this is obviously the best Batman game for anybody over the age of 10 ever done. So if, if you, you know, how did you get this and what inspired you to seek it out? Well, first, thanks very much. Um, you know, it, it's been great to work on a Batman game. And the one thing that's been great is uh, being able to draw our own story for Batman. So we're not tied into any existing story. We've been able to develop a game story right from day one, working with Paul Dini to create our own unique uh, story that kind of follows the structure that's essential for a video game, which is unique and different from a film, comic book, you know. So um, I think the, the unique thing about this game is that it's not really about... Uh, when we started the game, we just wrote a big list of what is Batman, you know, who is Batman, what is Batman, what do people enjoy about Batman, and our goal is just to include all of those things in this game. So we never sort of started off saying... It's a brawler, and that's all he does. We really wanted to encapsulate all those things that people know and love about Batman. So, um, kind of wanted to get away from this concept of making a genre game and just into really making what we kind of ended up with as a Batman genre, you know, that only he could be in a game that has detective elements, predator elements, combat elements, forensics, you know, uh, these great characters, these great antagonists. You know, it's uniquely Batman, and I think that was what I think comes through in the game and what I feel the team have done a great job with. And yeah, I mean, previous games have certainly captured the element of uh, Batman needing to be stealthy. I think you're the first to capture that he scares the living crap out of criminals. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and do you get extra points for that? Extra experience for this? Does it say that on the box? <laughs> it, well, sure. The ability to inspire fear in his opponents, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's what Batman is. And I think that one of the things with stealth that we feel is totally not Batman is that stealth's about kind of being scared and hiding. And we really felt that Batman is about being empowered and running the situation and being in control and being prepared and planning these strategies you know these are all things that, that those are the things that mean that Batman can take down anyone you know given enough time to prepare Batman can defeat anyone so we really wanted to get that across in the game and allow the player to plan exactly how they were going to take people down and then watch as they tip people down and everyone reacted to that so watch as that fear spread and use that fear for their own benefits you know so when people are blind firing around corners they're losing their discipline so they're not being able to cover each other they're not being able to control the area so well and you can take advantage of that as Batman so you know that was an essential element of the character that we felt hadn't really come across before and we really wanted to get in the game so this is a a Batman story in a game are you putting it in a, into continuity with the comic at all or or is he just iconic Batman <laughs> I mean, I think in terms of the continuity, you could say that we are, like, in parallel, like, everything is true to the comic books, but it's our own story from here that develops from here. Um, so, you know, it's really important to us that this was really authentic, this game, and it was authentic Batman experience. And that was such a, uh, you know, one of the two things we started with is that it has to be authentic and fun. Those were the two key words right at the start, so we never wanted to get away from that. Um, so, you know, we've got a, a hell of a lot of Batman fanatics on the team, and everyone just, you know, made sure we kept it on track. Were you a Batman fanatic as a child? I'm a real Batman fanatic. I mean, it's one of the unique things about Batman is that everyone loves him. Um, <laughs> it was kind of weird. You know, even, like, the, even, the the are, no, even the Joker. Even the Joker loves him. The Joker loves Batman, for sure. <laughs> the Joker doesn't have the crap scare. It's kind of, no, yeah. no, that's true, yeah. Um, you know, so, I mean, to be honest, it also gave me the opportunity to go back and read a lot of the classic graphic novels again, and I really enjoyed that because, you know, I hadn't had a chance to read them for a while, go back and read those again and really enjoy those classic stories from the 80s and 90s, you know, and it, there's so many elements in there as well which, which maybe you can't do in a film so much or can't do in other mediums. 
that were great for the game, the kind of deep psychological elements that we really felt we could give a unique spin on in the game. Things like the forensics as well. So many elements. The detective angle. Yeah, the detective angle is a really big thing for us. You know, he's the world's greatest detective, and yeah. it's so often overlooked. And we really wanted to get that in the game as well. Now, this is a single-player story. No, no multiplayer. No online. Yeah, I mean, there's no, uh, there's no multiplayer in the game, and part of the reason for that is that Batman is so multifaceted that you know we decided those are the things we're going to focus on. We didn't want to stretch ourselves too thin and not have an area of who he is represented well, so that was kind of the main thing. However, on PS3, right, you can play from the Joker's point of view. Yeah, uh, PS3 exclusively, you can play the challenge maps from the Joker's point of view, uh, and you'll be playing against the Arkham security, uh, playing against Aaron Cash as well, who's sort of ordering the guards around. So, yeah, it's, it's quite cool. I mean, you even get things, you even go as far as... Uh, in the main game, if you get defeated, you get taunted by Joker or Harley. But if you're Joker and you get defeated, you get taunted by Batman and Cash. Or, so, you know, we reversed the whole game for Joker. It's, it's good fun. It puts a different skew on it. And he, he obviously doesn't have the same kind of moral restrictions that Batman has on his actions. So, so are you guys a little nervous about the developers working on the Joker's point of view? Or are they a little <laughs> sketchy too? So does the Batman power up throughout the game? Does he build up and as the threat rises as well? Yeah, over the course of the game Batman will collect a number of different really cool gadgets um, as you move throughout the game and also get to return to uh, a secret Batcave that's on the island as well. Um, as well as that you collect experience points as you play through for how you play the game and how skillful you play the game and you can use those to buy new gadgets like uh, homing batarangs or uh, steerable batarangs um, and also upgrade the gadgets that you've got by new attacks. So there's a lot of development as you play through, as well as the development in your own skills. So by the end of the game, you're going to be in these crazy fights that you will never believe you'd have been out of fight when you start the game. You know, like at the end of the game is you've got these incredible showdowns. So it just keeps escalating and escalating as you play through the story. What was the biggest challenge in developing this for you? Um, I think the biggest challenge really was trying to get across all of those things that make Batman who he is. So. It, with, with other characters, typically in a game, you'll sort of say, okay, here's the brawler, we'll make a game that's just about the fighting. And for us, we couldn't really do that, so we really, you know, like, we really wanted a fighting game that felt unique, that didn't have this sort of standard weak, weak, strong, weak attack that you see in a lot of fighting games that really represented Batman, and anyone could pick up and play and beat up six or seven guys. And at the same time, we wanted these predator elements, we wanted the detective forensics, we wanted the antagonists, I mean, the... The, the antagonist, you know, we wanted to have the greatest antagonist in any game ever, you know, we really wanted to set the bar high. The great thing about Batman's world is that, you know, I think what separates Batman from a lot of other characters is that he has this fantastic, you know, cast of supervillains. You know, I don't think any other comic book character rivals the number of great villains that Batman has. And so we really wanted to do them justice as well and make sure that you really felt them throughout the whole game, that it isn't just Batman, it's Batman plus these villains. And really what's unique about Batman is that he's, it's his relationship with those villains that drives him on. You know, it's, it's not really so much in Batman about blowing up buildings and about, right. you know, it's, a, it, it's much more about these kind of close personal relationships. And I think that's why he strikes a chord, because he's, he's a lot deeper than a lot of other superhero characters. You know, he's, he works on a lot more levels. really wanted to get that across in the game. And you also got that across by casting two people that are really iconic to yeah. a lot of people. Yeah. So... How much influence did you have on 
getting Kevin Conroy and Mark Hamill to come in on this game. Well, one of the great things, obviously, working with Paul Dini is Paul knows Kevin uh-huh. and Mark, so that obviously <laughs> helps us a lot. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> and I mean, it's, it was a no-brainer, really. You know, like the funny thing when you make a Batman game is you spend a lot of time discussing what, how would Batman approach certain situations, like how does Batman open a door. How does, you know, like just silly things like that because it's the sort of thing you never see him do. So we discuss it for a long time. How would you expect him to see an open door? When it comes to a decision about do we have Mark and Kevin on board, that decision gets made in about one second. You know, boom, let's have those guys on board. And it was great to get them in. And they added so much, you know, they added so much to the game. Uh, Mark's performance as the Joker is amazing. And we recorded more lines for Mark because his performance is so incredible, you know, because constantly making you laugh while at the same time making your life a misery which is this <laughs> fantastic balance that I don't think you know you've seen before in a game and uh, so many other great characters as well and Kevin as well is sort of the antithesis of Mark you know calm and in control at all times unflustered against Mark's flamboyance and total out of control you know, sociopathic joker so have you built an engine now that you think you're going to build additional Batman stories on top of or if you can or, or, well the, the game's built about? on the Unreal Engine and okay, we have our great. own uh, unique animation AI right. uh, audio lots of unique stuff that we built especially for Batman like the cape physics stuff as well I mean what next is uh, you know it's down to get it out there get the fans to play it and see what happens really so a lot of that is down to other people to decide and then see what schedules line up with what schedules oh, like taking that for three months yeah probably yeah, a little bit of that yeah <laughs> but um, you know like we're really just at the moment so excited to get the game out there and get the fans playing it and when when is the street date so she dates August 25th. Okay. So not too long now. A couple of days. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Oh, okay. A month. A month. A month. A month. We're good. No, yeah. But yeah. we're getting there. We're getting there now. So it's exciting times. Excited for us to wait. I can't stand waiting. <laughs> so really you. looking forward to it. Thanks oh, yeah. very much for cool. talking to us today. Brilliant. Thanks very much for your time, guys. Next, we jump back into a conference room for another roundtable interview with. Michael Bassett, and Solomon Kane himself, James Purefoy. This one's 22 minutes long, but if you're a Solomon Kane fan, you want to listen to this. And if you aren't already, you're going to be after you see the movie, so hang in there. Oh, ten years, I would say. Well, the genesis of Solomon Kane's in 1930, whatever it was, when, no, when Robert Howard did his first thing. Um, I think that the, the producers managed to get the rights uh, 10 years ago, 12 years ago. So I came on board about two and a half years ago. I'd done, I made a couple of movies. I made a film called Death Watch and a film called Wilderness, which were low-budget movies, low-budget horror movies, which uh, had done okay, that looked okay. I was, seemed to be able to get decent production value for not much money. And so Paul Barrow, who's the English producer, was working with a company called Working Title. Yes. They were looking around for a... They'd, have a, they'd had, I think, five scripts for Solomon Kane written before I became involved. And they were generally very big budget things dealing with the African adventures. But what the producers had decided was that they wanted a origins tale, which was something which uh, Howard never really explored in his in his writings. Um, so I was a fan of the character anyway. I mean, I wasn't steeped in Solomon Kane mythology. I'm not a Howard scholar, but I knew enough to think there was a chink of light in there to get the uh, to get to get an origin story out of there. So I proposed an idea, um, and they what they wanted to do they wanted a script which they would then give to another director. And I thought, well, no way is that going to happen. You know, there's there's precious few fantasy adventures around. I'm, you know, that's it's the genre I believe the film was built for: fantasy, sci-fi, worlds that don't already exist. Um, so I wrote him a script which was affordable in, in the world of independent movies. I mean, it's an expensive independent picture, but it is an independent. 
not going to talk about the budget. It's um, can you give us a you need to find a find a producer and have that conversation. Well, he'll say what I'll say will be different things. It's it's about the budget of James Cameron's catering, I suspect, on Avatar. How do you prefer for a role that, what is it, a 16th century Puritan adventurer? Well, I, I, it's very old-fashioned, it was easy. I, I, a, I'm very old-fashioned, and I'm, I'm quite shallow. Uh, I go into makeup, and I get the makeup put on, and then when I come out, I'm Solomon Kane. It's really as simple as that. Um, you know, I did a lot of research, obviously, into the period. I mean, it's not a period I'm unfamiliar with anyway, because, you know, I've done a lot of that kind of stuff. So, uh, you know, once you've done an awful lot of research on other projects, it's kind of minimal research needed because you just have the knowledge of it. But um, one of the things we, would, we were doing research on was, um, are we going to use this as a... I think it's, it seems to be one people like to talk about. Yes. We, um, we were very keen to, to make sure that the fights weren't glib and that they weren't cool in a way that often I've seen. You know, I like fights to look like people get hurt. Because I think you know we should uh, be responsible in a way with our attitude to violence and make sure that people realise that there is a consequence to a certain action, and that you know when people get hurt, they genuinely get hurt. Um, but this isn't something that people should take lightly. Um, so we wanted to make sure that we knew what a sword could do to a human body. And but not yours. But not mine. No. What we <laughs> though we did find out oddly enough at one we point. We did find out very, very. <laughs> yeah. We uh, uh, several times. Um, you know, we were we, you know we were dealing with big, big Czech stunt guys who, you know, I've worked with a lot of stuntmen in my time, and, and frankly, I've, uh, you know, Czech stuntmen really are just the bee's knees. They're the best guys you could possibly come up against, and they make you just look better. You know, so that, those are the kind of people I praise. But one of the things we did was we. We decided we needed to know, as I say, what a sword would do. So we found a butcher who gave us a pig carcass. And we hung that pig carcass up from the studio ceiling and dressed it in the kind of costumes that we were using and worked out whether or not you could actually slash flesh through the leather that would actually then cut a man underneath. And we found out that actually what tends to happen is bones get broken rather than actual, you know, cut. So we found that, that swords were very good for stabbing, but not so good for slashing, unless you wanted to hit people really hard, and then it would, uh, it would uh, break bones instead. Yeah, I mean, even Richard Ryan, who was our sword master, had never done that. You know, it was, it was something we wanted to find out. You know, what are you gonna, cause I only knew about what swords did from other movies. That's the thing. So it becomes so you, a Chinese it, it, whispers it, thing. One of the well. things that happens when you're making a movie is, is that what you don't want to do is just recreate other movies. You don't want to uh, uh, just take that and make an assumption about it because you've seen it in other films. You need to kind of find it out for yourself. So that was one of the things. Yes, yeah, part, part of the objective to create like a reality. You yourself as well. Yeah, no, I did. I had a lot of injuries. I was fine. I, was, I had a lot of injuries <laughs> on the movie. Um, you know, I, I tore a meniscal cartilage I, uh, in my knee and... Uh, one particular day, it, just, it's a, it was a very tiring shoot for a start. You know, it was, it was, How long it, was the shoot? Was, 60 days. It was 60 days. It was in the Czech winter. I had this guy here throwing just everything at me that he could possibly get, which was you know, rain, snow, frost, minus 15, minus 20 degree temperatures. Most of the film is shot outside. Um, and... Uh, and yeah, there was one day when I must have been tired, but also I was kind of risking it a little bit. There was a big guy coming at me with a sword. He's about to take the top of my head off. I duck. Ah, close the door. That'll be the. 
marching band. So we bring our own mariachi band with us. That's my marching band that follows me everywhere. You have your own theme music. And I ducked and... And I was meant to duck so that the sword just flipped the top of my head or just in my hair and I didn't duck fast enough and it hit me here and we had seven stitches put in the top of my head. I remember seeing him go, I was watching on the monitor, seeing him go down like a sack of potatoes, you know, hit really, like a boiled egg. No, we went to see a very good, brilliant uh, Czech plastic surgeon. So I ran who, into him with a camera and took a photograph of it immediately for my own. But it was, you know, one of those. <laughs> blood blood pouring he, he, down he, my got face. Up, he got up after the, after the take. We knew it had been. Every, you know, there's this incredible hush on the set when suddenly, you know, your lead actor goes down and a sword. We didn't know where it hit him on the head, he just went down. Stood up, blood's pouring down his face. A scalp, scalp wound bleeds disproportionately oh, yeah. as well, you know, so he's just gushing blood. And two thoughts go through my head. And not in necessarily the right order. One is, you know, oh my god, is James okay? And the other one was, oh my god, is my movie okay? And, you know, he got up and actually he was saying seconds later, no, we can carry on. You know. I was, I was like, come on, no, oh, come on. It's I a think scratch. it was concussion. It's nothing, it's nothing. And I couldn't see, but yeah. the blood was in my eyes. And, um, and they go, no, Look really, right. I, we really yeah. kind of need to get you to hospital now. Um, Jeff, please go ahead. Uh, so, um, yeah, but. The, what, oh, that, but movie. I felt that the guy kind of did it because I'd already a few weeks previously <laughs> I had stabbed a guy in the face one of the stuntmen I gone poof with my sword and he in a, he wasn't meant to move he always meant to get it here on the side of his neck and he moved and down I stabbed it in his right there Ooh. like that far in his flesh yeah. and uh, he's delighted with his scar <laughs> I don't think he. Were, I don't think producers paid for the expensive so plastic surgeon payback? for him. Yeah. Maybe there was some an element of that, but it was definitely one all by the end. Gentlemen, um, I haven't had the benefit of seeing footage yet. Okay. And, uh, I, my audience is very much a comic book audience. They're very much Robert E. Howard fans. Right. Could you tell us a little bit about first of all your take on the character, who Solomon Kane is, and, and how you adapted it for your use and. What villain or villains, what sort of conflict he faces in the film? Okay, well, first of all, I mean, from my point of view, because I wrote the script as well, I was asked to come up with an origins tale. Um, as I said, you know, and to me, Howard is a literary character and not a comic character initially. You know, it, it comes from a literary tradition and has been co opted into the comic book world, which I love. I don't necessarily like the dark or new ones, but I love the, the ones from the 70s and 80s. I got the collected editions. Looks terrific. So it was a question of finding a way of getting. To a point where we, in the subsequent movies, there are going to be subsequent movies, where we can tell Howard's original stories from the novellas. That's what I really wanted to do. But so it was a question of saying, where could this character start and where could he end so that he ends at the right point? And that was absolutely the prerogative and the, and the, and the, um, and the priority for me. Um, and there's a couple of lines in a few of the stories which hint at a dark past. A lot, of, a lot of Howard's writing, and he's a little inconsistent about his history of Cain, I have to say, if you read the, read the lines. Um, sometimes he says Cain was always, always his Puritan sort of God. And a couple of times Cain actually himself says, I did bad things I'm ashamed of. I, lead, I led bad men, we did bad things in the name of good, but I am ashamed of them. And I thought, well, that's a way of getting into the character. Let's go, let's find what those bad things were. Let's start him from a place where he is evil and corrupt and avaricious find a punishment for him for that, which is this threat of going to hell, the, uh, the forfeiture of his soul, whether it's a metaphor or an actuality, Cain absolutely believes it. He wants to be a good man. And this begins that, that journey towards his faith and the, um, the, the, the subtextual <coughs> ideas of a man you know, l l learning to use his powers of violence for good. 
Yeah, they, have, they have modern resonances. Now, in terms of the bad guy, there's no, we don't take uh, Le Loop or any of the bad guys from, the, from the, his original stories. We just give them a, a clean slate. We have, you know, um, reapers from hell and ghouls and monsters and fire demons and there's an evil sorcerer at the end of it. So it falls beautifully into that sword and sorcery tradition, which I absolutely love and wanted to do. You know? But in the middle of that, the, the, again, the priority is it, it takes the genre very seriously. It's not glib, it's not ironic. Uh, and it is anchored by a performance from this guy, which I think is, is extraordinary because it's a proper performance. It has value, it has resonance, and it puts us into a place where we get who Kane is. I mean, the, this poster we've got in front of us now is, is very representative of the, of the feel of the movie. It's a man who's got a great weight on his shoulders, and that's kind of what I wanted to do with it. It looks like the Sandman on the sherry bottle, doesn't it? Huh. I, the Sandyman, yes. Yeah. Sandy, Sandy. I know exactly. <laughs> I don't know what that is, sorry. <laughs> And James, can you tell us about your interpretation of the character? And well, I just can't see point, a point of doing a film like this unless you take everything seriously. Mm-hmm. You know, and because it's patronising to an audience, it, it means that nothing matters. Um, so it's the, the person in it, you're being glib and you're wisecracking your way through it, then there is an element of seriousness about people's lives that you're trying to save or protect or his own. But if you don't take it seriously, you might as well just go home. I, can't, I just can't see the point of it. So... Um, you know, I wanted to make a film where people watched it and were really engaged with the characters, you know, and that's where we started from, and that's the starting point, is making sure that people care about the characters and what happens to them. And, and there's never know, any conflict between us in terms of finding... I mean, immediately, we seem to be on the right path with it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I just don't... As I said, I, I can't see the point of turning up otherwise. Um, and you've got to throw yourself into it in a way that is... I, I've never worked as hard as I have on that movie. Um, as I say, it was a 60-day shoot. It was incredibly tough. I was shattered at the end of every single day. Um, you know, I mean, you don't want to push this too far. I mean, you know, it's an acting job after all, and uh, you know, it's not. You know, people in the world who push themselves every single day really to save their own lives. Um, I, I was going back to a nice apartment in Prague, so you know, I wanted to over egg it. But um, I do want to, you know, I mean, as far as as far as really throwing yourself into a job, it was. You know, I did do that, and I don't. Mm. I mean, the film brings a benefit of it as well. Yeah, really and does. there is an enormous benefit, you know, because I think when people see the film, they will believe that this man is going through it. There are times when I look fucked on the screen, <laughs> excuse my language, but, you know, I look shattered. I don't look well because I wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> There's my, very few actors that get to play these kind of iconic roles, and you're sort of entering into Harrison Ford territory with this one. Um, does that kind of make you nervous? I get very excited by the fact that we don't have many British superheroes, we don't. if you like. We have James Bond, we have Harry Potter. <laughs> and now. Yeah, yeah. And we uh, don't, really, yeah. that's kind of it, really, mm-hmm. in terms of big cinema experiences so I was very excited to be you know to be offered the chance but to do something like as well, no not daunted I don't get daunted I get I get you know that show gladiators when they go gladiators ready <laughs> that's how I feel I get excited by it I don't get uh, I take it as a challenge and it's my job that's what I do I you know I, I turn up on set to play these kind of characters but it was a hard job. I mean, casting Kane was, was hard in many ways because it's, there are very few guys who are real guys. Certainly out of the UK, there's a handful of them. James is amongst them. And you know, it was a long time getting to the point where we go, certainly where we can say, this guy's absolutely right. I'd known James a little, bit, little while, for, for 10 years on and off, we've been talking about doing a movie together. Um, and when we met and talked about it, he has 
a masculine presence, which is kind of rare, and he's not a, a youthful stripling anymore. He's no, kind of he's, not anymore. Well, no, he's grown, but he's but he's grown into a maleness, which is kind of hard. The Australians just seem to have it in spades. The Americans are finding a little bit, a little bit less masculine. We're we're kind of there. Silly. <laughs> yeah. Um, but we're, and, but and, and and we're sort of a little bit our, our theatrical tradition sort of precludes it as well. So there's a few guys who you go to, and James, I think, is absolutely amongst them now. Yeah. Um, Michael, can I just ask? Kane always has a little bit of a feel, almost as like a kind of like a pulp western with sort of supernatural yeah. sort of overtones. Have you reflected that at all in the movie? Well, one of the things that producers were talking about when I during the first meeting was the, the Clint Eastwood vibe, uh, and I think he has that. He has this kind of laconic. I mean, he doesn't speak much, and he certainly doesn't. He has he has the odd line which you can find a bit of humour in, but he's not doing it humorously. And I think yeah, I think that the western concept is is a very accurate and. I feel that's what Howard was trying to achieve when he wrote it. So yes, it's yes, it's there. It it's not quite as pulpy as Howard's stuff. It, it is a little bit more serious, and it's a little bit more. There's a lot of artistry in, in the work on the screen itself. The production design is. Feel, I mean, from a, a modestly budgeted movie, there's terrific production design. It's beautiful cinematography. Who's the production designer? Ricky Ayres, English guy. He'd done um, a lot of the the, uh, the Discworld stuff. Oh, the, the sky, sky stuff, not yeah, far from yeah, yeah, so this was his first really big gig, and he did a fantastic job on that. Uh, and when he came in, we talked about the, the look we're going to go for, and the fact that it's, it's real, it's dirty, it's broken. You know, it's, it should look, you know, it has to have a veracity, it has to have that look of filth and dirt, and all those guys, you know, from Pete Possethwaite and all the other the family members, you know, just the way, the broken down the costumes, the... The makeup, all that kind of stuff, yeah. it's just vital that you get a feeling that these are people who are in a harsh, harsh environment. And, you know, one of the things we did, I remember when we first talked about it, is stripped away his dialogue. Yeah. Is we just took out Kane's lines over and over again. That You know, when he's being asked what his history was, he needed to be asked several times, you know, yeah. what, what, what did you do? You know, were you, so you were a... You know, there's a scene with the family, yeah, yeah. and I remember saying, no, we should just not let him give answers yeah the, for an actor they, to give away <laughs> lines when he yeah. says when they say so you, you were you were uh, you were a captain in the queen's navy uh-huh. yeah and it takes a little boy <laughs> to get it out and the boy has to yeah. keep coming back yeah. and i so did you and, and did you ever meet sir walter raleigh mm-hmm. and you know that kind of level of clint eastwoody kind of you know i was very affected by clint eastwood as, as a boy uh, and that level of mystery about people, you know, the, the less they say, the better. And your success in the philanthropist is, is presumably going to help this project enormously. And Hopefully, I just yeah. wondered if people have been tapping you up for anything since the philanthropist. I've got a number of things lined up, but I'm, uh, I'm in such delicate stages of negotiation, I can't really talk about them, but, you know, I mean, yes, for the next Well, I, I actually months. meant more in terms of, are they asking you for favours, if you can help them out? Oh, I see. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I see. Well, we did a lot of work when we were in South Africa, a yeah. lot of stuff. And you know, as you know, when if you're playing somebody like that, you are endlessly trying to find ways that you can help those communities that you're in filming right there and then. So you know, when uh, you know we would leave stuff. I mean, it's really off message. We shouldn't really be talking about stuff. Right? Um, no, but there were like, there was a moment, for example, when we were out in the bush somewhere, and we had to we had we were using a man's very small house, and he him he lived there with his three kids. His wife had died of AIDS. And he, they slept on rugs in the in the bedroom. There was only one. Actually, there was one room, which is a bedroom and a living room and everything. And we came in as production and made it into a kind of bush hotel. So we had three beds put in, wardrobes, side tables, all that kind of stuff. 
And at the end of the day, I managed to convince production that it would cost them more to take all the stuff back than it would just to leave it there. And look on his face. So satisfying at the end of the day, because those kids slept, and he slept in a bed for the first time in his life. Independent genre films are not very common. No. It's because of budget and things like that. Were there anything anything that you had to go without in the making of this film? Absolutely, of course, yeah. of course. You cut, you cut your cloth accordingly as well, but going into it knowing the nature of the financing and the nature, you know, we're not supported by a studio system here. Right. We don't have endlessly deep pockets. It forces a kind of creativity which I think is liberating in a bizarre way. Yeah, in post-production there were a whole lot of effect shots that I couldn't do, okay. but the story's not affected. And, and, and I said this from word one, I said, my special effect is James. You know, if I, if I can't put my fire demon on, I'm going to go back to him because he's given me value which that other kind of more glib and easy effects thing doesn't do. Now listen, I would love to go back and do a special edition with a whole bunch of all the shots I have to take out, but the story remains pure. The story absolutely works. And it's the robust structure that makes the difference. But yeah, of course, it's a, it's a mod- modestly budgeted film trying to look like a big budget film, which it absolutely does, because we put stuff in in the right... For the, in the priorities were correct, you know? And there was also that thing you were just talking about in the hall there, which is, you know, when you see Kane fighting a man on fire, he's fighting a man on fire. Yeah. This isn't special effects. It's there not is CG. Some, it's no CG, and it's a long fight, you know. It's the a guy. Suit, basically. He's in a fire suit, but... He's been, for two minutes, listen, he, he's, he's, he's a full, full body, burn. body burn for a two minutes doing a massive sword fight. He's got a big double-handed broadsword in his hand. He's got he's a wearing pipe a mask. Up, his, up his sleeve and take four or five, he breathes fire into his mouth and burns the inside of his mouth and then asks to do another take. The next take... I am so I'm I'm finding it slightly alarming. I have to say because I'm fighting a man on fire. I I forget. I do about a bum move. I meant a boom in his arm, and it, it's meant to go there. I do it there. Out of the flame, he's in a ball of flame. Out of this flame comes his hand, and he does this. <laughs> <laughs> But so there is, there is a, you know, yeah, you, know you know, invention is the mother of all necessity. And when you have, are working on a budget, which, you know, was not huge by any means, you get a look in an actor's eye who's fighting a man on fire that I don't think you would ever get if it was put in afterwards. Mm. Prague's a great place to shoot on a lower budget yeah. as well. And, and it apparently gets shot for being... Anywhere but Prague as well. Is this place in unnamed Europe? Oh, this is England. It is in 16th century England. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, you know, I would love to shut it in. No England. Africa? Not this time? No, this okay. time. Next time is Africa, and okay. that will be in Africa. No big staff. The Juju staff is the next story. Okay. How many do you have lined up? Well, there's, there's, I, have, I, have a, I have a three story arc in my head. So we, we, I, got, I got the character to a place where I can really tap into Howard's stories now. It's kind of like we've done the heavy lifting work in yeah. terms of his character and where he comes from. And now we're kind yeah. of liberated yeah. of that because the audience will know that. I want, I want, to, get, I want to get into the heart of darkness of Africa, into the, into the rainforests and discover hidden cities and harpies and witch doctors and things like that. And what the juju staff really means and what he can do with it. Yeah. And but, does Solomon Cain have a love interest? Not in this story. He has... I can't ever see him. I can't ever. I mean, as much as I try to imagine him opening up to a chick, I just can't <laughs> see him. <laughs> it's really not about that. There is, it's, to me, it's about the family value in this one. Is it the love of, love of family and the fact that in, in the course of this story, he does 
begin to realise that there is warmth and love to be had from a, a, a safe family and it's a safe place for him. So Rachel Hurd Wood, who is our, she's not our love interest, but she is our feminine presence. She is innocence. Which Personified, that's what she is. You know, yeah. Rachel is just so gorgeous, so beautiful. She's got an incredibly pure face. And she, for him, represents just complete innocence and purity and something that has to be really protected. So that's kind of, mm. that's when you see that those thoughts going on in his It's a courtly love in a way, isn't it? So it's an unrequited love. Yeah. Well, for her, she obviously, she obviously is this, this, this protect, powerful, protective man, so she aspires to be something that he would be interested in. But of course, you know, Cain is, is, is the more paternal figure. And that's, that's what I wanted to do, because I didn't want to have the mess of love interest. There's nothing particularly in We that chose her specifically because she was so young, yeah. and we did not want an audience to imagine for a second. I, yeah. I can't bear it when I see much older men getting off with much younger girls. I just find it. I, I find it. Yeah. 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 It just gives a funny taste to what I have, you know? Yeah. So we wanted to make sure that the audience would think right from the off, there's no way anything's going to happen between those two. You know? I mean, she has a crush. Sweet. Thank you. And of course, saving the best for last, we now have the Venture Brothers interview Jackson Public, Doc Hammer, creators of the Venture Brothers, the voices behind the Monarch, and Dr. Girlfriend. Just to set the stage a little here, we were supposed to have the interview at the Adult Swim booth, but it was cigarette break time. So we walked out the back door into the alleys behind Comic-Con in front of the trash compactor to set up our mics. We start off kind of oddly with a discussion of my shirt, which is a Graffiti Designs replica of the Kevin Smith's Moobies uh, burger joint worker shirt, purple with a uh, big golden cow on the front. Yeah. Anyway, enjoy. I like your shirt, sir. Why, thank you. It's a summer job. doesn't pay too well. It's a, it's a Kevin thing, isn't it? It is. It's the it's the uh, fast food restaurant that keeps on showing up in the films. Has Kevin been here yet this weekend? This He's afternoon, I think. He wouldn't say anything, though. He says that he hates coming here. Anyway. Keep, keep that up, sir. My confession. Really, oh, fuck. <laughs> that was great thank you that came through very nice did it test that's good is that going to the podcast we don't need to test anymore that's an outtake <clears throat> okay yeah so this is, we, we do two ways this is, we record and put into a podcast we do weekly I stay digital we go digital to analog right. I stay digital he does the word he, thing he cuts it on a, on a, well, on a mother record it, and yeah. Yeah. Well, it ships it out to all sure the kids on 45 yes Taiwanese kids I'm sure right. they'd rather listen but I don't know if they have time to do that so you know kind of so, uh, somebody transcribe it and publish it as a, a, a leaflet like Tom Payne had something to do with it. Well, we're Fanboy Planet. We're, we're uh, yeah. just so pleased you could meet with us. Yeah. Oh, that's, I'm glad you could come to the, the, to the, the alley behind the Smoker's Center Alley to smoke it. It's very glamorous. It seems <laughs> appropriate, actually. Yeah. I don't know why. Yeah. I, you, you must take a picture. You're hanging out with the Tufts. There's a good chance yeah. we're, yeah, we're, we're, we're all going to give you guys wedgies soon because... <laughs> We're in the back smoking. By the compactor access, by the way. Mm. Yeah. Let me, may I, with cigarettes in hand, please? Yeah. Yeah. Like Charlie's Angels cigarettes. Oh, that's, 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 that's going on the Christmas card. Please. I knew this smoking. What's a smoke Christmas like? Now the geeks are doing it. 
All right. So, so I guess we should ask you some questions. Yeah, right. So and then you can, you can continue doing <laughs> what you're doing. We already talked about your shirt and stuff. We've asked all we can of you guys. <laughs> you guys have great astro. Uh, we do this, so um, we know what to wear. Yes. What do you wear? What do you wear? Oh, fuck that shit. We just got the astro suit. Yeah, so can you? Can you? Why I don't I have that? You did. It fell off. Did you launder it? I don't know. You you had every compliment. But to be fair, you're wearing your theme tag. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Right. But since it's since it's audio, can you identify yourself so people will be able to place by the digital town? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I'm Jackson Public, and I'm Doc Hammer, and together you are. We're the we're Astro Base Go Adventure, Adventure Brothers. Brothers. Excellent. Yeah. Excellent. <laughs> so, season three. Are you talking about it right now? Yeah, it already came uh, out season, on, season on four, DVD. Season four. <laughs> yeah. no, season, we'll it's give been you some, a long we'll give you some spoilers uh, for yeah, season yeah. three. Season three, yes. Um, we are going to kill 24. <laughs> what? That's nice. <laughs> um, we're, we're gonna, Brock's going to quit. Helper's going to explode. I want to know what's the next DVD box set theme going to be because the last one just blew me away. That's, that's a no, no clue. Closely guarded no secret clue. in, um, in, in you, the fact that we have no clue. No idea. Yeah. yeah. And probably, it'll probably be a while before that one comes out. Because we're, yeah. we're breaking the season up into two halves of eight episodes. That'll be probably six months apart or okay. something. And we're going to do a super pricey box set. Yeah, I don't think we'll do it as a DVD until all 16. Until all 16? Yeah. So Thank you. Why the division? Yeah. Why the division for season four? Because we screwed up. <laughs> because we were two... Uh, this was the... Season three and four were greenlit at the same time. And, I won't. Uh, that was the first time we ever tried to go straight from one season to another without like waiting around to find out if we get a green light or taking six months off or having to take other jobs so uh, and we were too tired at the end we couldn't write there's a lot of stuff and, to do I don't know the election threw me off oh. and I yeah, yeah, sure removed and stuff but, too much uh, hope yeah we just we were just so exhausted that we only made it like two episodes in and we had to like shut down for a few weeks and then we tried to start up again and round when he turned in the eighth script we were like we gotta we're so behind we can't catch up can we just stop here so that we don't hate this and uh, and we'll pick up in a few months so that's what we did they went for that what do you, what do, you do to recharge your sick twisted creative batteries I masturbate yeah. Okay, yeah. you win. And, and that I your money now. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> now, it's this faster is, than you thought. It, writing is, is 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 different than like we do a lot of stages of the production. So for writing, it's you just kind of reinvest yourself into these characters again. But for the other things, it's like a job. You like show up and you do it the best you can. There's no magic. You know what I mean? There's no recharging yeah. of, but, of yeah, batteries. For writing, it's uh, just having a chance to like sit still for a minute and like read a book or watch a movie and make fun of it. I don't, showering, showering, uh, all my Sleeping, best ideas. Like, oh, oh my god, I slept so much. Got a, a, I, I, have a, I have a product idea, which is I want whiteboard markers for inside the shower. That I just want to be able to write them. I just want to write it on oh, my yeah. chest and shit. And then That's, go, you got no yeah, room left. Okay, take a picture of it. And, no, I uh, like talk to myself in the character voices yeah. in the shower. Yeah. So season three, did you did you go into that and say there's no way we're going to be able to top this each time? Because it seems like you you ratcheted up not just the level but three or four and then off to the left a bit. Oh, there's not we're not as much into forethought as you as, no. as you think. <laughs> uh, maybe we amp it up just because we feel like amping it up. But there's yeah. never that we got to top ourselves. We honestly don't give a rat's ass if we top ourselves. <laughs> it, but you, you do. Know, it's just, I, I'm glad we do. I feel some pressure too. I never not, do. Not in it. I do not. What are we going to hit him with? But just like, how do you make it interesting? How do you make this not predictable and more of the same crap? And just where, what are we going to mess around with these characters? Do you ever say, no, we can't go there? Rarely. 
I think really. to ourselves, like sometimes yeah, I yeah. go, this is inappropriate. Well, okay, mm-hmm. where, okay. where would you not go? Well, we have a guy that is a convicted pedophile, so yeah, I, yeah. I know. I had a, well, which, hence the question, really. It's not but we, we made him. We made we made him an ex-pedophile and made him lovable. So strangely, so where would we not? I, He's trying to know where we wouldn't go. It's just like no, there are like there are like occasionally I've poorly executed something that is yeah, there are some edgy or whatever, and you go, that's just there are some ugly stereotypes that 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 seem like you're knocking down a, a, a taboo, and you can get people around it to go, this is a cultural taboo that makes us uncomfortable, and we kind of need to goof on it. And then you read it, and you go, no, this is like an ugly yeah, this is just statement contributing and, and, to yeah, whatever yeah. <laughs> Because, yeah, I mean, it's tricky, because, like, part of the joke, at least in the beginning of the show, was, like, goofing on the kind of xenophobia of Johnny Quest and stuff like that. And then, But it's it's hard we'll to see. make fun of that without being that, you yeah, know? Yeah. Like, yeah, sometimes inside of parody, you become the thing that you're parodying. So you're, there's a there's a burden, and we kind of respect the burden of that. Yeah. And, and, and it usually comes after, like, it's... You write it, and you're kind of jazzed, and I'm like, yeah, let's take this, and then you read it, and you're like, that is disgusting. <laughs> and because we have gotten kind of, as uh, you say, that you become what you, what you we, we um, gotten excited about actual the plot. I mean, I know when you... Oh, yeah, up, well, you can't... Right, for all the outrage there, and... Oh. <laughs> what about the outrage? No, when, when you killed off the henchman. Oh, right. Like, well, yeah, well, not outrage, but everybody's like, no, you can't do that. You know, well, no, it's no. it's it's not really a Johnny Quest parody. It's we we accept yeah. the Johnny Quest world, but you created your and own then mythos. and created yeah. created right. a world. And now we can make good stories. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And and we we like that people um, soap opera it and get excited about <laughs> things that connections that happen and get mad about deaths in the show. It's pretty good for a cartoon that's basically there to be funny. Well, this yeah. last season was just amazing with all the callbacks to the, to the previous stuff. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're, we sometimes we border on having Darth Vader make C three PO, but we, we try to <laughs> we try to avoid that. Like, well, it's not planned. crawling up our own ass. I'm going to guess it's not planned out. At the beginning it's or... it's half and half. Yeah, we you have an idea as to who this guy was and what he's. We sometimes secret. we have a lot of backstory that we've never gotten to. Okay, you know, like stuff going back to like the earliest pitches of the show like oh we knew these guys were connected and we just never get to it and then like third season you do and people go ah they're plotting that the whole time or you know you, we overwrite every script so we cut out like 15-20 pages of crap every script and it's usually the details and the backstory and stuff like that and some of the and so stuff- hints of it end up you know like just little whiffs of it end up in an earlier episode and then we finally get around to hitting it Full on later, and it just seems like we're seeding it. Yeah, these these long cool. versions become <laughs> canon. Like we'll discuss all the great stuff we want to do with each other, include none of it. But now we know. <laughs> but, <it informs laughs> yeah, us, yeah, but now we, we know all this know information. Yeah. So people are like, "Wow, they really plotted it out." No, we just ex- excluded it and put it in little bits, and, and people think we're being clever and giving them a little bit of information. We're being um, editors <laughs> and putting back in our material when we can. Okay, so. What can you say that where where you're going to go with season four that won't be spoiling too much? But obviously you're here. For uh, we, it's the same. It's moving, the same no, journey. No, we, we move mean. forward though. More more than before. We we I did think. make a slightly conscious effort to, to jump the shark. To um, <laughs> well, to to map out where we want to go and see if we can get it get it moving. So it. I guess we are actually upping it. It's going yeah. to it's going to going to move yeah. even. But like char- characters have actually evolved this year. Yeah. Changed since the well, last if you think about it, season. Hank and Dean were like Bart Simpson. They would just come back every year, the same age and the same thing. But they were clones. 
Mm-hmm. So now they're not clones anymore. So they're they're coming back growing up, which is kind of a weird thing to do, especially for our designers that have to remember that like <laughs> Dean's a little taller and Hank's hair grows every episode. It's like it's 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 a hard thing to do, but we're we're trying it. Most proud moment in the series. In the series? In the, in so the, far? Oh, sorry, so far, yeah. We're know. really proud of the Mars thing. That's funny. Yeah. Yeah, the Mars... I'm really proud of our second season premiere because it was... felt like it was like a big jump what, forward. What is the one... I'm proud... And I was very confident. I'm proud of the, the third <laughs> season premiere with the, the panel... The, oh, the, right, right, the 13. Right. Yeah. Because, one, it was, it, there were only... Jackson, James, and I did all the voices. And you never get that sense of, like... There's not enough people in it. It was a, it was this weird compact episode that takes place primarily in a room, yeah. And it's a lot of talking. Yet, when you watch it, you get the sense of that was a really sweeping episode, but it wasn't. Yeah. So I, I like it that we uh, uh, I like it when we fool ourselves into thinking we're making an action show, but it's not. It's just chatty, you know. My dinner with Andre bullshit. That's that's what I like. That's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> Have you ever heard from David Bowie? No. No, and uh, we would boy, love to. So I would, I would even love to be sued by David Bowie. I just want, I, I just want to, I just want to end up in court with David Bowie. They would be like, and from the defense, like stand up and go, that's Bowie. <laughs> Thank you, Your Honor. I just want to apologize, in I person, just want to, man. Sort of apologize. I just, I just want to say this: Station Station is probably the greatest album ever made. Just, just let, me, just let me get this out. I just pissed on myself. I, yeah, it's it, it's um. We, we, we do this loving, weird Bowie tribute. You know, Bowie's not Bowie in our show. He's like this, this magical, mythical yes. version of the Bowie mystique. And um, if he would just register that, like... And he's a shapeshifter. These so two who knows? Yeah, he yeah. could... He's that might could just be a, a guy who picks to be Bowie. All did, the yeah, time. like it might There's not no be Bowie. Really, yeah. No, <laughs> we don't know. I don't want to be Bowie anymore. <laughs> yeah. So uh, yeah, no. If you would just at least just register that, like we are loving him publicly and weekly. <laughs> but um, I don't know. Even a letter from a mom would be fine. It's like a little handwritten kind of thing. <laughs> yeah, my husband just really loves it. Or Duncan. Anything yes. I, I no, went we to see we, his moon movie. We know, yeah, we know, yeah. We, we know he watches cartoons. He lives, you know. he lives down the street from me, David Bowie. Does he really? I have, I have sat in a, uh, I've stood in a line with Iman pushing like a stroller with a little Bowie kid taking candies off the thing, and I'm, I'm picking and him up. Yeah, I'm picking him up, and I just want to go. Oh, your husband is like the greatest yeah. ever. I just, just wanted to say, and I like the short hair. You don't need to put the wig on. I think it looks great because you know she has her head really short. Beautiful woman. Bowie's great. I'm sorry, we just love yeah, Bowie. There's no way he's not a supervillain. Yeah, he's, yeah. <laughs> well, I agree. Yeah, <laughs> there's no way he doesn't head up the Gilda Clamorous intent, and probably a lot more. Instead of season four. No, okay. Well, we think we <laughs> it's not a spoiler. It's just, that's that's love for David Bowie. <laughs> Excellent. Well, we, we know thank, you got a panel, and we, yeah, we, we thank you for your time. That's wonderful. And, welcome. Uh, we'll sign off. Thanks, thanks very great. much. It's a pleasure meeting you. you guys. Very nice meeting you. And that wraps up the interviews from Comic-Con, at least the ones that we recorded. Derek has a lot more available for reading for those of you who do that whole letters to words to sentences to cognitive recognition. Yeah, that stuff. Yeah. Um, But if you just want to listen, you come on back here next week. Well, we'll be doing episode 150 of the Fanboy Planet podcast. And remember... 
Use your powers only for good. Could be nothing, but maybe we should check it out. And thanks once again to the great Luke Ski for use of his music in this podcast. Visit Luke Ski at www.lukeski.com. Well, we think we <laughs> it's not a spoiler. It's just, that's, that's love for David Bowie. <laughs> Excellent. Well, we, we know thank, you got a panel, and we, and we, we thank you for your time. That's wonderful. And, Welcome. Uh, we'll sign up. Thanks that very much. That's it's a pleasure thank meeting you. you guys. Very nice meeting you. Could yeah. could you do a bumper for us? Just like it's a. Uh, okay, we're gonna do it as um, Monica, your girlfriend. girlfriend. Oh, excellent. Ready. Go, go ahead. Hello, I am the monarch, and I am currently chasing Dr. Venture around. That's so sweet. <laughs> I just wanted to remind you to use your powers only for good. Thank you. Only. <laughs> Thank you.